Hey everybody, Leah Slaughter. I hope you're doing well today. I don't know about you, but I have been running ragged today, so it'll be nice to take an hour and get to just sit here and talk with you guys about what property management is. So things that we're gonna cover today are, do you need a property manager? We're gonna talk about what a property manager does. We're gonna talk about the pros and cons of professional management what questions you should ask any manager that you're interviewing. And this can translate into questions that you can ask statewide, not just here in Texas. And then in addition to that, we're gonna talk about some of the things that we see go wrong. It's a lot of the same issues, whether someone is self-managing or whether there's a third party manager that maybe isn't experienced or doesn't have a large enough team. And so I'm gonna cover a lot of different things today. So you're probably gonna have questions as I go. This will be one of the webinars where I stop and do questions as I go. So don't hesitate to put those in the question box in your screen on the right if you have any as I go. So before I get started, as always, no crystal ball. Gonna go over my best knowledge based on years of experience, my own rental property ownership, and of course, owning and operating a property management firm. There's no crystal ball, so nothing I say is a guarantee. I'm doing my best to give you my opinion, my judgments, and certainly the best guidance that I can, but we always encourage you to consult with those in your life who are also a part of your investment team, such as your CPA, attorney, et cetera. Now, going to go over just a little bit of background because we do have some new customers on here today and I'm not going to spend too much time on this but you can read this later but long story short Michael and I are middle school sweethearts we started the firm together in 2006 we travel all over the United States speaking lecturing on radio TV media about not only rental property ownership property management but also a lot of the charity work that we do for the organizations that are real important to our heart uh, we have over 40 employees. This is actually um, a little bit outdated. We've got a team of, I think, 49 as of today, and we have over 1,800 properties under our purview. We ourselves are high-volume investors. Uh, going into COVID, we were buying 10 to 20 units a month. And so all of that being said, we cover about 75% of Texas at this point, and I would expect that that will be soon increasing. So all of that being said, let's get started. So number one, we're going to cover what is a property manager, because a lot of people don't really understand what a property manager is, the licenses required and the standards that we're held to. So number one, a property manager in Texas is a licensed real estate broker or an agent with a brokerage, often with a team under them. Now, if you have an apartment complex and you hire an employee to work as a property manager, in that scenario, that property manager is an employee and therefore no longer has to be licensed. But an independent third party who is conducting property management, so someone who manages a small apartment complex, who manages homes, those types of things, if they are not your employee, they must be licensed. A property manager is and should be a specialist in leasing, marketing, and managing rental properties. And we're going to go over a lot of what that entails here in a little bit. Most importantly, they should be knowledgeable in Texas property code, fair housing, and HUD requirements, which are ever-changing. And so when I think about at a core what a property manager is, we're a little bit accountant, we're a little bit lawyer, we're a little bit marketer, we're a little bit therapist, we're a little bit crisis negotiator, we're a little bit of everything. And so when we look at the umbrella of property management at the core, it is looking to navigate a relationship between an owner and a tenant, the return on investment and the tenant's well-being, 
while all keeping in mind at the end of the day that the goal is to make money. And so sometimes it's an easy job and some days it's extremely fun and some days we wanna pull our hair out, but at the end of the day, we love what we do. And it certainly, in our opinion, is a very important piece of the best way to make money, which is investment property ownership and investing. So let's talk about what a property manager does. There's a lot of moving parts. And so I've tried to categorize some of the ones that I feel are the most day-to-day -day important. Number one, of course, rent collection, repair oversight. And so this could be something as simple as cosmetic defects. This could be something as large as a fire. Evictions and collections. So you know, dealing with past due rents is much more than just sending an eviction notice and going to court. It's helping tenants budget. It's understanding what financial difficulties they're having and how to help them find ways to overcome it. It's knowing that they're struggling and there's no way to get out of it and helping them to release the property so that they can move on. You can be made whole with a breach fee and we can get another tenant in there to avoid getting to eviction court. And then of course, if there is a balance left over from either damages or move out, at eviction case, whatever it may be, it's making sure that we have follow-up processes on the back end to collect that money. The leasing and marketing, this is paramount. And of course, along with this comes into play the two-month re-renting period, the walkthroughs, all of the pieces that make that leasing and marketing possible. Bookkeeping, making sure that we're sending 1099s to vendors, making sure that we have proper evidence of what we need for each vendor, whether it's insurance, whether it's a W-9, whether for some vendors it's a license, and then making sure that we have the records pertaining to those repairs, the tenants, everything, you know, from rent collection to late fees to repair charges to whatever it may be. And then, of course, application processing, making sure that we're checking criminal and eviction and rental history, checking for bankruptcy filings, checking not only for eviction cases, but we go so far as to find eviction filings that have been retracted. So tenants that maybe they had an apartment complex who filed on the 4th, but then they canceled the case because the tenant paid. We want to see that filing history as well. We want to look at pet photos and make sure the pet is not an aggressive breed dog. There's just so many little things that go into applications processing. And then finally, property visits and assessments. It's checking on the tenant, checking on the property, checking for things the tenant's not educated enough to look for. You know, a lot of times we forget that tenants are not homeowners and they don't really understand all of the time what a water leak or foundation movement may look like. They may not understand what a healthy watered lawn should look like. And so a lot of our quarterly walkthroughs are not just making sure the tenant's following the lease, but also that the tenant understands what's necessary to properly maintain a unit or your property. And so those are all the things that a property manager does. Now, when you're interviewing a property manager, there's a lot of things that you want to verify. And this is just a small list of them, but let's talk about the most important. Number one, you want to make sure they are licensed. And number two, you want to make sure they are insured. A lot of people don't realize that in the state of Texas, there's only certain triggers that require a real estate agent or brokerage to be insured. And when we talk about insurance, we talk about insurance that covers if something really wrong is done or something crazy happens. And so, you know, there's there's certain requirements about how the ownership is derived of a real estate brokerage as to whether or not they need to be insured. And most brokerages don't fall under that category. And so you would be amazed how many brokerages do not have insurance. And I just don't mean errors and emissions insurance. I even mean things like liability insurance. I can't tell you how many different policies a company like me carries. 
you know, maybe they have employees on staff, but they don't have workers comp. So if they don't have workers comp, they're not immune from getting sued, which means that they can file on your insurance claim. And there's just a lot of different things people don't think about. And so when you're interviewing a property manager, you want to make sure, along with any vendors that you're using, of course, if it's not through us, that they do have the proper licenses, that they do have the proper insurance, because God forbid if you ever need it, and although that's a very rare occurrence, if you need it, you wanna make sure it's present. So you also wanna make sure they're a realtor, not just a broker or not just an agent. Let me tell you why. So the Realtor Association is what provides MLS access. Now I've talked a couple times on classes about how there's a lot of lawsuits about this happening right now, especially up north where they're trying to say that everyone should have MLS access, not just realtors. But this has been an ongoing fight for a very long time and I don't see it changing anytime soon. So as of today, you cannot have access to the MLS or list a property in the MLS if you are not a member of the local Realtor Association. So let me give you an example. We are a member of probably 10 realtor associations because we need access to all of those different MLSs. So if you hire an agent from Dallas to manage a property in Houston, they have to be a member of the Houston Association to be able to get access to the Houston MLS. And so some of what's happening right now is this corporate takeover of property management. Pretty much all of the other companies our size other than a select few have sold and gone corporate. And they're trying to streamline their processes into one central office. And what's happened is they realize that if they list a property, let's just use an example, they have a property in Houston and a property in San Antonio, they can put it up in one MLS that's not proper for that area and it will post to realtor.com because realtor pulls from all of them most of the time. What they don't realize is it doesn't post to agents who are searching in the local MLS and lots of the subsidiary sites that are determined and available for that specific area. So very important that you make sure whatever agent you're working with, if you are in a big area that has its own MLS, that your agent, your broker, your property manager is a member of that MLS so that they can effectively market that property. But you also want to make sure that they use the MLS because a lot of property managers don't use MLS because either they don't have that membership because it's very expensive. And if you have MLS, every licensed person who works in that MLS, you must also pay dues for. So for a company like us, who's mostly licensed for all of our employees, it gets very, very expensive. So make sure that your agent is using MLS and make sure that they are members of the MLS. You wanna make sure they specialize in property management. And this is especially important right now. Um, for those of you who know our story and know kind of what we've done, we were here well before the last crash. And one of the things that happened is when the market crashed and nobody had business, everybody became a property manager. And when I say property manager, I say that very loosely because they had no experience, they had no training, they just knew that there was money in working with investors and there really weren't home buyers buying. And unfortunately, I think what we're gonna see a lot of right now are more people pushing into the investment and in property management market. And the reason being is North Texas is so investment heavy because so many investors come here Houston, so investment heavy, so many investors go there that what happens is it entices a lot of people to get into that business, whether or not they have the experience to do so. So just make sure whoever you're talking with 
I would make sure that they have experience in property management, make sure they've taken classes in property management. And you also want to make sure that the broker is overseeing all property management activities. I can't tell you how many times we have issues where an agent is doing property management and the broker has no idea. That's not allowed. The broker must directly oversee all bank accounts and everything to do with property management. And I have actually been hired to handle situations where agents did it outside of the broker's knowledge, did it completely wrong. And it's a nightmare because those agents don't have the oversight that are needed to be able to effectively run that, nor did they have training, et cetera, et cetera. I tell the story sometime of where we had a tenant who was making Venmo payments to a property manager and it got into eviction, it got into appeal, and we were hired to handle this and the judge allowed the fake Venmo records. Well, that case I've talked about a few times, I reference it a lot because it talks about why we don't go against what our policy is, why you don't make special accommodations for payments and open up liabilities that don't need to be there. And in that particular instance, it was an agent doing property management. The broker had no idea. It was an agent who had never managed a property, rented her property, never owned one, had no idea what she was doing. And so very important that you not only have an agent who knows what they're doing, but also a broker overseeing it who knows what they're doing. And that is actually what the licensing requires. You wanna make sure they're visiting your property during the term of their management. This seems like a crazy thing to have to say, but you would be amazed. We take over properties every day that have not been visited since that tenant moved in. I've taken over properties that have had a tenant in there for 10 or 15 years, and the old property manager has only been over there when there's a repair. They don't have in-house repairs, and so they send a third-party vendor who is not doing anything to look at the property while they are there. So very, very important that somebody is checking and putting eyes on and overseeing that property for you. Of course, that's part of the service you're paying for, and so you want to make sure that that is happening. You also want to make sure they have people local to the areas they service. This is especially important with this corporate takeover of property management because, again, they may not have a team in that state. They may not have a team in that metroplex. So if you have a property in another state and you're hiring one of the big property management firms that works nationwide, make sure they actually have teams in the areas that you're looking in and not just partnering with third-party agents. It's very important because when you want consistency, it's important that you have the same people overseeing what you're doing. There's a reason that we have centralized all of our corporate functions to our North Texas office and then have local things that happen at the local levels. Why is that? So that you have the same team, you have the same response, you have the same answers, you have consistency, but we still have people who know the areas in which they serve us. So it's okay if you need to partner with an agent to show or something in a smaller area. Maybe you have a property somewhere in the middle of a state and there's really not a big presence there. It's okay to have someone who does the showings locally, but in terms of the team overseeing the areas, they need to understand those areas. They need to either be local to those areas or have training and knowledge in those areas and certainly be licensed in those areas in my opinion. And then finally, preferably, my personal number one, they need to be investors too. No one is going to understand your bottom line. No one is going to understand your goals and no one is going to understand all the nuances and the pros and the cons of investment property ownership, the stresses and all the different the decisions that need to be made if they don't themselves have investment property. I would go on a limb to say most property managers don't. And that to me is a big red flag because a property manager should believe enough in what they do and the model in which they service to want to have and offer that same thing for their own financial freedom. And so if they don't have investment properties, that to me is a red flag. So do you need a property manager? I get this question all the time. 
there are a few criteria that I look at when someone asks me if they should hire a property manager, especially say you live in California and you're doing a rental property that's only 30 minutes away from you. A lot of people will call me and say, well, how do I know if I need a property manager? So these are the general questions that I use to determine that answer. Number one, are you available and do you want to be available 24 seven? Anything can happen. Crazy things can happen. I got a call on one of my properties, which you guys know the stories on my properties are usually pretty extreme because I buy some rough ones and they have rough tenants in place until I kick them out. So I got a call that there was a standoff at one of my apartment units in my Longview apartment building at about two o'clock in the morning. Apparently a tenant was hooking up with the tenant next door and her boyfriend found out who is not on the lease of course and beat up the tenant next door and apparently robbed a convenience store and decided to hold up in her apartment. So I get text messages with eight squad cars with guns drawn in the parking lot waiting to bust into my unit. So you can imagine how much fun that was at two o'clock in the morning. And this is a perfect example of a crazy scenario that should never happen, but you just never know. So ask yourself, are you available and do you want to be available 24 seven for emergencies and repairs? This is especially important if you are buying a property that needs renovation, a property that maybe hasn't been greatly maintained, a property in a very high crime area like this one, or a property that has tenants in there who maybe are a little bit more difficult. Maybe tenants that are used to dealing with a mom and pop, maybe tenants who are used to dealing with, you know, good old Freddie who's been at that property for 20 years and he does anything they ask anytime they want and they're used to calling for every little thing. It's something that you want to make sure that you have the time for and that you want to make the time for. I always give the example, everybody's goal is to invest and make enough passive income to retire or quit your job. Why would you quit one well-paying job to go work another that you could pay somebody $80 a month to do? So if your goal is passive retirement, your goal is not having involvement, that's when it's time for a property manager. Do you have a team of vendors available to handle repairs and items needed? And then a follow-up to that, can you get things done as cheaply as an in-house property management team can? A great example is vinyl wood flooring. We pay about 30 cents more a foot than what we do for carpet. If you were to call most companies off the street, they're not going to be able to get anywhere close to that. My average granite kitchen costs me $1,200 or so. Are you going to be able to get that pricing from vendors that you have in your list? And generally, when you work with a large property management firm or a firm that does a lot of investment property, you're going to get pricing benefit of their volume that you may not be able to get otherwise. So that's another question to think about. Do you have knowledge in Texas and national laws, including property code, fair housing, and et cetera? And I'm actually gonna table this item until I get to that part of my presentation because I'm gonna go over some of the things in those laws that we see people get in trouble for or make mistakes about frequently. A big and very important one, are you able to be mean to people? I know that sounds a little mean, but it's the truth. If you have a tenant who's not paying and tells you their grandmother died or their child has cancer or whatever the situation may be, are you going to be able to put aside your personal feelings and your personal thoughts to be able to handle that situation the way that it should be when we look at the fact that this is an investment property, this is a business? It can be very difficult. And then similarly, can you put aside your own personal beliefs and biases? Because in property management and in real estate, 
there are very strict laws about why you can or cannot do certain things. And so if you have a hard time being able to not judge somebody, if you have a hard time being able to not walk that fine line, you should not be managing your own property. And we'll talk about some of those examples later. Are you comfortable showing strangers your property, including evenings and weekends? And then are you comfortable walking into occupied units to show strangers, including evenings and weekends? And then finally, are you able to effectively market a property? Do you have the knowledge to effectively market a property? Now, there are some ways you can get around the last one. You can hire someone like us to lease the property for you and then you self-manage. So there are some of these pieces that you can pick and choose which parts you're comfortable with and which parts you're not. But at the end of the day, the bottom line is this is a business and it is one that you never know when you're gonna be on call. You never know when you're gonna be needed. And the larger your portfolio gets, the bigger a time commitment it's going to be. And the more areas that you buy in, the more states you buy in, the more that you're gonna to need to know. I'm a big believer in property management. It's why I started day one working with investors. I was 18 years old and I knew this is what I wanted to do. I'm passionate about it and I love it, but I also understand that there has never been a day in my entire life from the age of 18 to now and almost the last 15 years that I have not been on my email, I have not been on my phone. Even back in the day when it was smaller, even back in the day when it was just Michael and I and I did my own walkthroughs, there was never a day where I was not on call and I did not have to do something. So keep in mind that property management is one of those businesses where you truly are on 24 seven because you never know when you're gonna be needed. The benefit of having a property manager, wherever it is, is that you know someone else is gonna take the brunt of that. Sometimes it's difficult for us to take something out of the front of our mind and certain people have better personalities and abilities to step back from concerns and worries and thinking about that. I know many, many people that hire us for property management or have other property managers that they do it because if they didn't have us, they would worry. They would always be waiting for that phone call. They would always be waiting for that tenant not to pay and having to deal with it. So at the end of the day, there's a threshold about what your comfort level is. And it, that is probably the biggest question you need to answer for yourself to know whether or not you need or want a property manager. Are you familiar with writing a lease and real estate contracts? This could be confusing, but again, you can hire a company just to do the service for you. Do you know how to process applications and adhere to Fair Credit Reporting Act and Fair Housing Guidelines? And we're gonna talk about some of those items later. Do you have the time to visit the property frequently to check on the tenant and follow up with subsequent visits to ensure that any violations or issues are being handled quick enough? Now, some people may say, well, I'm just not gonna go to my property. I don't wanna disturb my tenant. My answer to that would be then you're not effectively property managing because the bottom line is if you don't hire a property manager, you become the property manager. And one of the ways that you keep vacancy down, one of the ways you keep repair costs down are to make sure that you're monitoring and holding the tenant accountable. And I'm gonna give you some examples of that a little bit later. And then finally, the worst part of all, are you comfortable attending court if you need to evict a tenant? I have attended eviction court on Christmas week. Did I want to? No. Did I have a moral obligation to do so for my customer? Absolutely. And would I do it again? Absolutely. Right now with all of these people who are struggling, falling under CARES Act, when that comes up at the end of July, am I gonna walk into that courtroom and kick them out? Absolutely. Do I want to do it? No, but I understand that that is part of my business. And so again, you need to be able to disconnect your own personal beliefs and personal biases to be able to run your business effectively in order to be a property manager. So let's talk about common pitfalls because I think it's important that 
you can translate this into many states. Yes, some have different laws, some have different requirements, but at the end of the day, there are simple things that you can do to avoid all the different ways where people make major mistakes that often cause major liability. Let's start with property code. So property code is state specific. There are laws that apply on the national level, and we're gonna talk about those in the next section. So number one, in Texas property code, what security devices must be present? Now this has actually changed since I got into the business. So this is one of the things that we constantly stay up to date about. As of today, for smoke alarms, you must have a smoke alarm in every single bedroom, on every main floor, in addition to the bedrooms. And then if there is a cluster of bedrooms, it must also go in the hallway outside of those bedrooms. So lots of smoke detectors required. For locks, you have to have a keyed deadbolt on the front door. What that means is there's key access from the outside and a thumb turn non-keyed entry on the inside. Why is that? Because if there was a key on the inside, like all of us grew up with, with the homes built long time ago, if that key were to be locked and removed and there were a fire or an issue, you could not get out through that door. So only thumb turns are allowed on the inside. In addition to that, you have to have a keyless deadbolt on every single exterior door. So that's gonna be your front door, your back door, your garage door. Any doors that lead to the outside must have a keyless deadbolt. And what that means is a thumb turn deadbolt on the inside of the door and nothing on the outside so it cannot be picked. Peepholes have to be on every single door that is not glass, including the door into your garage. Slightly ridiculous, but that is property code. Now, if you have a sliding glass door, you have to have two points of locking at all time. So that could be a slide bar and a chain. It could be an actual physical lock. There's lots of different options, but the bottom line is if you have a sliding glass door, you need to make sure it has two points of locking. Now, of course, when we do our rekeys and our property code checks, we're checking for all of this, but every state has different property code requirements. So wherever your property is located, make sure you are up to date on what property code requirements there are and that you are constantly reviewing property code for any changes. Let's talk about repairs. A lot of people don't realize that there is an emergent repair clause in property code. So your most emergent items are 48 hours or less. Now, that being said, you can override some things in your leases or clarify them. So the TAR lease that we use specifically states that ordinarily an AC or heat repair is not considered an emergency. That being said, all of us understand that if it's 100 degrees in Texas, that home inside is going to be uninhabitable. So there's also walking the gray line and being able to make determinations to figure out what truly is emergent and what is not. But generally, major repair items and items that are non-cosmetic in nature need to be fixed within seven days. Security deposits are another issue that we see frequently. A lot of people don't understand that you can't deduct normal wear and tear, nor do they understand what normal wear and tear is. In addition, a lot of people don't recognize that you have to have a forwarding address before you have to refund that deposit. So if your tenant vacates, they don't give you a forwarding address, there's a 30-day countdown, but it doesn't begin until you have that forwarding address. And another important thing to keep in mind is if you're going to go against their credit and send them to collections, you need to send them a 10-day notice. So what we do is if we don't have a forwarding address, one way we can circumvent that is to send it to the property address and put a note on the envelope to request the mailman to please forward that now, when we send it to collections, they're gonna skip trace that tenant and they're gonna find out where they are. But it's extremely important that you make sure you meet that 30-day timeline because if you are late, the tenant can be liable to receive treble damages. And for those of you who don't know what that means, that's tre three times treble. So if you have a $1,000 deposit that the tenant is due back and you don't send it in time, the tenant can now be due $3,000. Certainly not a position you wanna wind up in. 
Now, can a tenant vacate a lease early without penalty? Most people say no, but that's actually not accurate. There are a few ways under state law that the tenant can vacate without penalty. Family violence, sexual assaults, stalking, and military service. Now, the military service works a little bit differently. There is still a notice timeline, and it follows on after the first of the following month, they have a set number of days. So we still get some period of re-renting. If you didn't watch my class on that, I taught one a few weeks ago about that matter. But if you have a stalking situation, family violence situation, sexual assault situation like that, there are ways they can get out without penalty and mostly without notice. A lot of people also don't realize you can't lock out a tenant. If it's a residential tenancy, you cannot lock them out. You cannot just shut off their utilities. Those things are not allowed. Now, you also can't change their locks without giving them access to be able to receive new locks. So you can leave them a note, you can leave them a lockbox, but you must make accessible new keys for them. Now. This chapter of property code we're talking about is not the chapter that handles evictions. So we're gonna go over some of those things as well. But the most important thing to keep in mind is ignorance of the law does not limit your liability. So if you make a mistake and you do it wrong, you can't just go to court and say, I'm so sorry, I didn't know. As an owner who is self-managing, as a property manager now, you have a moral and legal obligation to know these laws and keep up to date on them. Now let's talk about the eviction portion of property code. So this is chapter 24. The last section we talked about was in the 90s, okay? So chapter 24 lays out the guidelines for eviction. The notice to vacate is the actual notice that you give the tenant demanding that they leave the property. A lot of people don't realize that if you accept any payment after that notice, you have now voided that notice. Similarly, if you file an eviction and you accept payment, you have now violated and basically canceled that eviction and you have to start all over with a new notice and then a new eviction filing. This is why if you have a tenant who's delinquent, we talk about whether or not we want to accept any payment that they can make at that time because it can start the process back over. Now, you cannot give them an opportunity to cure in that eviction notice either. So when you send your tenant their first eviction notice so that you can then file eviction when it's up, you want to make sure it does not give them an opportunity to cure. That's not to say that you can't let them cure but it cannot be noted as such in that letter. Now, what is a forcible entry and detainer suit? That is essentially your eviction filing. So when we say we're filing eviction or you need to file eviction, that's actually what you're filing is a forcible entry and detainer suit. A writ of possession is what happens when a tenant doesn't leave after they've lost an eviction case. So once you go to court, the court's gonna traditionally hear the case between about 10 to 21 days. Those timelines have been temporarily suspended with coronavirus because of backlogs and other issues going on, but generally we're still seeing pretty close timelines to that since courts reopened a couple of weeks ago. So the tenant will have five days to move or appeal, and if they appeal, there's a couple ways they can do it. They can put up the bond and they can do the appeal, or they can do what's called a pauper's affidavit, which essentially says they want to appeal, but they can't afford to do the bond or the requirement to get to appeals. They're not common, they don't happen much, but every time you go to court for an eviction, you risk that appeal and you risk a pauper's affidavit. And so it's very important that you do everything you can or whatever property manager you're working with does everything they can to avoid eviction at all costs. If we get there, we'll get it done, we'll get through it. Luckily, we're in a state that has some of the best eviction laws in the world. However, we want to make sure that we do everything we can to avoid it. So once you win your case, the tenant's gonna have five days to move or appeal. If they don't move, then what happens is we go file to get a writ of possession. And what that means is the constable's office is going to meet us at the property. We will bring a team of people to move everything out to the street. And the constable will physically remove the person from the home and oversee and watch as we move everything to the curb. 
At that point, the tenant is out of the property, we rekey, and you have possession of the property. Now, to file evictions, this happens in a justice of the peace court, and you have to file in the precinct and the place that follows your property. Now, one great thing about our area is some of our precincts have a couple different places that we can file in. So if we have a judge that we like better or a court that we find is better, we can file in that location instead of the other. The jurisdiction is about where the property is located, and it's not always that easy to figure out what court covers your property. So we have lists we know, but if you ever need assistance with that, you're more than welcome to reach out and we'll guide you through that. Now keep in mind, chapter 24 and chapter 92 are different as I previously noted. So you wanna make sure you stay up to date on both of them. Now let's talk about federal law. Fair housing is pretty black and white. I'd like to say it's one of the things that is pretty black and white to me, but a lot of people get confused. So some of the things that we incorrectly hear are things like, I only want to rent to a family. I don't wanna to rent to a single man. They have too many kids and they'll trash the place or they're too young to be responsible. We hear things like this all the time and these are all a violation of fair housing. Sometimes when we send you a lease application, you might write back and say, well, how many kids do they have? Or how old are they? And you'll see me real quick chip in and say, I'm happy to answer this question for you, but we cannot use it on basis of approval or rejection of this application. That's my way of tapping you and saying, hey, we need to be real careful right now. This is fair housing. Okay, so we are always looking at ways that we can make sure we treat everybody the same to follow the laws. I talked about this a lot as it pertained to rent collections and coronavirus, that you really needed to have a policy that you applied to everything that you have. And the reason being is because you never want to have a claim made that you treated someone differently because of X. I don't want someone to come back and say we treated them differently because they're too young or we treated them differently because of the color of their skin or whatever the situation may be. It may be completely untrue, and I'm sure it would be but that doesn't keep someone from saying it and trying to make a difficult time. So especially when we're in the business of rejecting applications and billing people, we want to make sure that we do things by the book and you wanna make sure that you know what the book is before you do it. Now let's talk about handicap accessibility because this is another thing that I see a lot of issues with. There's reasonable modifications and reasonable accommodations. So I wanna kinda of talk about the difference and what you are responsible for and what you're not. Let's talk about a single family house to make it simple. If we have a tenant that needs modifications inside a bathroom to be able to have grab bars or whatever it may be so that they can be more comfortable to navigate, that is something we have to allow them to do. That is a reasonable modification in a way, but it's not something that you have to pay for and it's not something that you're responsible to pay to return back to its original condition. So if somebody has a disability and they need some type of accommodation inside that property, you can make that change, they can make that change, but they are responsible for the cost and then they are responsible for returning it back to the way it used to be. Now let's look at a similar situation for a multifamily unit. Let's say that you have a multifamily unit and you have a tenant running that property and they need a wheelchair ramp into their unit. That can be something that you are held responsible to do. A more clear black and white example would be a handicapped space. Say that tenant is handicapped and they need the upfront space right in front of their unit to be handicapped for them so it's available for them. That would be something reasonable for you to do at your expense and that would be something that you would be expected to do. Now the kind of bar to set when trying to make these decisions in some of the gray areas around handicap accessibility is undue financial burden. For most things in real estate that apply under fair housing, it's only if it does not cause an undue financial burden. So let's say that you have a tenant renting a second floor unit and they want a wheelchair ramp all the way up to the second floor. 
it would not only take up too much space, it could block off some of your parking areas, but it would be extremely cost prohibitive. That could not be considered reasonable because of the fact it's an undue financial burden. So the better option would be to put them in a downstairs unit and get them an upfront handicapped space. So that is the measure of the law. And we talk about undue financial burden a lot as it talks about um, pets and emotional support animals and your service animals as it pertains to aggressive breed dogs. So another example of an undue financial burden, and we're gonna talk about animals in a moment, would be if an insurance company said that they cannot insure that item. So you would no longer be able to have your insurance or your rate would go up. That would be considered an undue financial burden. And so that would be a situation where we can go against what the law requires. So again, if there's something that needs to be done inside the property, typically you're going to allow the tenant to do it, but it will be at their expense. If it's a multifamily situation and it's an exterior item to help make it more accessible, that's generally something that will be your responsibility. Protected disabilities under this are gonna be mobility, so how they move around, hearing, visual, chronic alcoholism only if they're currently in a recovery program, mental illness, HIV, AIDS, and AIDS related, and then mental retardation. So this is something important to keep in mind. A lot of people don't realize that alcoholism and mental illness are covered under this section. So if you have a problem tenant, often we have to tread very carefully dependent on the situation. So just keep that in mind. Now, let's specifically talk about reasonable accommodations and reasonable modifications. So an accommodation is something reasonable that doesn't cause the undue financial burden. It could be a change in the rules, service, or policies of the property. So as I mentioned, a wheelchair ramp, reserved parking, service animals will cover in a moment. And then typically that is going to be your responsibility to pay for, as I mentioned. A reasonable modification is something that's done inside the property as noted. So this does make landlords required to make these modifications as long as it doesn't cause an undue financial burden and the tenant will be responsible for the payment of these items. So tenant has to get approval from you, that's important. And then they have to be done by a proper contractor. So the tenant just can't try to open up a wall and remove moldings to fit a wheelchair in by themselves. The most common things that I personally see are gonna be your doorway widening, grab bars and bathtub or shower, and then a ramp. And you can require, and we do require, a unit to be restored to original condition after the tenant leaves. And often we do that during that re-renting period because we want it done before they're physically completely out of the property. Sometimes we have it prepaid for it to be done. And sometimes we actually do it and require it to be done in-house. Now, finally, as noted, the tenants will pay for this unless it is listed as federally assisted housing, which that's not something we typically see. So going on to service and emotional support animals, I've done another long class on this, but I did wanna just touch on it briefly. So what qualifies as a service animal is an animal that is used as a tool to perform a service. A lot of people will try to tell you they have a registered service animal, but it's really just that the animal has gone through service training. It doesn't actually perform a function for them. The animal has to physically fill a service or a need for the person who has a disability. Now there's a difference between a service animal and an emotional support dog. One does something physically. Maybe they sense that somebody is going to have a seizure. Maybe they're a seeing eye dog. Maybe they're a balanced dog for somebody with a balance disorder. An emotional support dog doesn't necessarily fill a service. It's there to support somebody emotionally. That's where the name comes from. Now there's been a lot of legislation that's happened in the last year to help give us more teeth on emotional support dogs because it used to be anybody with a pit bull would go online, download a $10 certificate and say that their dog is an emotional support dog because we wouldn't allow the pit bull otherwise. Now those online certificates are no longer allowed. It has to be a letter and a requirement from someone who has direct knowledge of their case and of their medical needs and they have to be able to provide that information. 
We also have more ammo now to ask questions, but it's still very limited what we can ask. The way that I look at it is this, and the law is pretty clear. If you can see the disability, you can't ask about it. If you can see that the person has no legs, if you can see that the person is blind, if you can see that the person can't walk, those are what we consider knowledgeable disabilities. We can see it, we have knowledge of it, we don't need to ask questions. If you can't see it, you can. And that is the difference in some of the clarification that's happened in the law in the course of the last year. If the animal is a true service animal or emotional support dog, the breed does not matter. Your pet policies, pet-free buildings, whatever, no longer matter because that is not a pet. It is a tool. Deposits cannot be charged. Pet rent cannot be charged. You cannot do a pet addendum because, again, it is not a pet. It does not matter if it is a pet-free building. It does not matter if you don't allow pets. Now, I definitely recommend that you contact your insurance company to let them know that you have an aggressive breed dog that will be on the property that is protected under these laws and get in writing from them or from the underwriter that they will cover and you have to cover this pet. If they say they won't cover the pet, that could be a lawsuit from the tenant to them or from you, but the bottom line is that then becomes an undue financial burden and then it can potentially be handled differently. If you have any questions on any of that, again, there's a question bar on the right, you're more than welcome to ask. Let's talk about fair credit reporting. This is a big one that I see problems with. So number one, a report can be a credit report, rental verification, reference check, or criminal history. Essentially, you're running, quote, the tenant. Before getting any report, you must certify that it's only being used for the rental property. You need to have a signed approval to allow you to run them. So you need to physically collect a signed application, and you need to verify who they are with a driver's license or ID. If any adverse action is given, the notice must be given to the applicant. Now, this is where people get confused. If you offer them a higher deposit than what you are advertising the property with, maybe they've got a blemish on their record, maybe it's their first place, whatever it may be, that is considered an adverse action. Anything you do to require a cosigner, increasing rent, anything that makes it not what you advertised because of the fact that you ran them is considered an adverse action and must have a denial letter sent. And basically the denial letter is going to state that you have offered alternate terms but you still have the denial letter responsibility. Now, you're probably thinking, what denial letter responsibility? There's laws about that, and this is where we see people go wrong. So when you send an adverse action notice because you have offered a term different than what was advertised or because you have rejected an application, you must provide a letter that states the contact information for who the report was supplied by, so that may be Equifax, Experian, or whatever program you're using, a statement that whoever supplied that report didn't make the decision, so they weren't the ones who decided to deny them. Explanation of the right to dispute the accuracy or completeness of the report, so they can contact them and say things are invalid, and the explanation of their right to get, within two months, a copy of their report. Very, very important. You are in violation of law if you do not do these items. Now, I strongly recommend you scan and save a copy of the rejection letter that you send, so if ever questioned down the line, you can prove that you sent that according to the law requirements. Now, when you're done with the report, you must securely dispose of the report and any information you received as part of it. So if you're done with this tenant, you no longer need all of their background information, you no longer need their social and all of these things, you must get rid of that information. The options are burning, pulverizing, shredding, or removing electronic information so it can't be later read or reconstructed. If you're downloading these things on your phone and you're trading your phone and wipe your phone, there are lots of ways you can destroy the information and make sure you keep it secure. 
you should never transmit somebody's report, their social security number, or their confidential information by email. Very, very important. Now, let's talk about some other things. The lease and the enforcement of your lease are your best tool as a property manager, as an investor, as someone running a business. Lots of people make the mistake of downloading online templates. There used to be days where we could go into Office Depot and Office Max and go buy a CD with leases on there. I don't know if you all remember that, but we'd go into the store and we'd go find whatever form we needed, whether it was for a lease or your taxes, or maybe it was because you had a household employee, whatever it was, and you got that CD, you put it in your computer and there was your file. The problem is those things are not based on local laws and they certainly are not the most up-to-date and the most landlord weighted. It is very important that your lease applies to the area in which your property is located, the type of property you have, and it protects all of the different things that you need in that lease. Things like the tenant being responsible for pest control, things like the tenant being responsible for lawn care and tree trimming, talking about breaches and the fees associated with breaches, the ability to do the quarterly walkthroughs or monthly walkthroughs or yearly walkthroughs or whatever it is you find that you want to do in your own management. Very, very important because you need those approvals in there to be able to do unannounced visits. For us, it's extremely important that we have that ability because if there is something going on at the property that's reported to us or we have a concern, if we give them notice that we're coming and give them time to prepare, we'll never be able to catch those issues. If we believe that there's a dog on that property that's not allowed to be there, if I tell them I'm coming on Tuesday at 5, guess where that dog is not going to be Tuesday at 5 at that property? In addition, there can be other reasons where we need unannounced visits. It could be for showings where we only want to give a little bit of notice. It could be because the fire department believes that there's a gas leak and if we don't let them in, they're going to kick down the door. I've had that happen many times. There are so many things that can happen that you need inside your property for, and you need to make sure that you always have the legal right and ability to do so. There are some states that may not allow this, and so I would encourage you to talk with your team in whatever state you're operating in to make sure of what the laws are and make sure you're comfortable with them. You need to make sure that the lease prohibits no high-risk insurance items, i.e., playgrounds should not be allowed to be added by tenants, above-ground pools, aggressive breed dogs, anything that could potentially violate or invalidate your insurance policy. The re-renting period is paramount. You must have the ability to show that property at the end of the lease. That goes back to our ability to enter the property. By having a re-renting period, you will single-handedly drop your vacancy rate. Why? Because it's a whole lot better to secure a tenant while the tenant is still there and get high-quality tenants that still have to give notice as opposed to showing when the tenant is out and then your great tenant applicant has to give 30-day notice or 60-day notice where they are and now you've signed yourself up for a month or two of vacancy. If we can have some of that time apply while the tenant is living there, we can keep that vacancy rate down. In addition, we have better ability to be able to get top dollar because we have more time to market. Tenant billbacks and lockout fees are very important. If the tenant stands up your contractor, you need to be able to charge the fee that that contractor is going to charge you for their attempted visit and their inability to access. Similarly, you want to make sure that you can discourage them from locking you out. So you want to make sure provisions like that are in there. You want to make sure that the rent mailbox rule does not apply. For those of you who don't know what that is, it means that the rent is not considered received when they drop it in the mail. It is considered received when we receive it. That way, if the tenant mails it on the third, but it's late after the third, it is considered late. And they can't say, well, I put it in the mail, so I technically paid it. You also want application of funds order. What that means is that if your tenant owes for late fees and repairs, that when they make their next month's payment, you can choose to apply it to those items first. 
Otherwise, it goes to rent first. They have no incentive to pay off those items and those balances will tick up. You need addendums in those leases like the bed bug addendum, the pest control, lawn care requirements, all the things that we talked about. Now, if you didn't watch my TAR lease class, I think it was two weeks ago, I definitely recommend you do that, especially if you're working with us. It's very important to understand what's in the lease and why we write our leases the way that we do. The list is never ending. There are so many important clauses that you don't know you need until you need them. But at the end of the day, your lease that's in place and your enforcement of that lease, your property manager's diligence enforcing that lease and putting that in place is paramount to a good return. You can have the best property you paid the best price for, but if you can't get quality tenants in there to take care of it, you can't get it properly marketed and you can't handle the bad issues when they come up, you will never make a profit. And so at the end of the day, the most important thing that you and I want you to take from this is to know that property management is a business. And when you're trying to decide whether or not it's something you want to do for yourself, whether it's in Texas or California or wherever it may be, make sure it's a business you want to do and make sure it's a business that you are comfortable doing. It's not easy. I'm not going to lie. When I sit in interviews with people, the first thing I tell them is it's brutal. It's high stress. You're going to get yelled at. You're going to get cursed at. Can you get over that? Can you look past that and handle yourself with the respect and keep your head high? And when they say, yes, absolutely. I thrive under stress. I like being busy. I like my days to go fast. I know that that's the right fit for somebody. And so as an owner and as an investor and as a property manager, I'll tell you the same thing. Be prepared, not everything is rosy all the time, but man, it's fun, we love it, and we are so thankful to get to do it for so many of you. So I hope everybody has a fantastic weekend. We've got some great classes coming up over the next couple of weeks. And then for those of you on our investor and owner list, we are about to send out the invite for our next quarterly mixer at our home, and we are so excited that everything has calmed down enough to be able to do that. So that will be on July 18th, and we hope to see all of you there. If you have any questions on any of this material or any follow-up items, you can always reach me and I'll give you my cell phone as usual, 214-724-9118. Stay safe, have a wonderful weekend, and I'll see everybody next week.